two men, two servants of the Lord, uh, who have sought in their own generation to be able to share a vision of the Lord, to be able to teach His Word faithfully, to present His gospel clearly, and for us to be able to talk through their ministry, what the Lord has taught them. And uh, at the end of the evening, we want you to walk away encouraged, edified, built up in your own faith. Uh, we're, we're quick to be able to point out we're not here to celebrate men. We're here to celebrate God and what God does through His servants. And so I've asked uh, a good friend, uh, Scott Anderson, who serves as the executive director at Desiring God Ministries there in Minnesota uh, to come down, and he's been so gracious to be able to, uh, to join us. And uh, we're gonna, just going to walk through some different questions this evening, and hopefully the, the men will feel the freedom to interact with one another uh, a little bit, and uh, we'll see where the Lord and the Spirit takes us uh, this evening. Scott, uh, coming to a Ligonier conference, um, it was about 10 years ago, you were telling me, that uh, you came to a Ligonier conference here in Orlando, and, and that just locked in some things theologically for you. Yeah, it was uh, Ligonier 2000, where this was just prior to my transition to Minneapolis. Uh, I came to that event, and the Lord met me in just powerful ways. And if any of you were there at that particular event, you may recall um, this was just shortly after uh, James Boyce's passing. And uh, there was something of a spirit of solemnity and power that was in the air and that was at that event. And God, just sitting out at the Orlando Convention Center, met me in some uh, just deeply powerful ways that sort of crystallized some ministry transition in my own life. And uh, after that, the Lord called me to Minneapolis, where I've been ever since. Been there for about 10 years at Design. That's correct, yes. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, <clears throat> yesterday afternoon, uh, I had the privilege of being able to talk with you, Dr. Sproul, about uh, the holiness of God and what really lit your fire there and set you down that path to get you interested in that subject. And so if we could just take a few minutes maybe to be able to talk about that with you, Dr. Piper, and just what, what illumined that for you and set you down that path. You gave us a hint of that uh, today, but uh, if you could just expand that out for us. Yeah, and I was going to give a, more than a hint tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> but repetition is good for the soul, um, or the mind anyway. The birth of Christian hedonism, what's summed up in the book Desiring God, was the tension that shouldn't have been there but was felt by me between God's passion for his glory and my passion as a teenager to be happy. I, I knew that those were two incontrovertible facts. My father oozed love for the glory of God. It stands out because of the way he pronounced the word when he prayed. For him, it, you divided the syllables after the O. It was glory, <laughs> not glory. And I always remember, just in every prayer, Lord, let your glory fill the earth or some other. So do all that you do to the glory of God 
was relentlessly pressed upon me by my parents. I saw it in the Bible, incontrovertible. And inside of me growing up was this, I want to be happy. And frankly, I felt bad about that. For whatever reason, my father was one of the happiest people I've ever known and never communicated to me, except maybe he did, because if you put a big bowl of ice cream with chocolate on top of it in front of him, he would taste it and say, that is so good, it's got to be sin. (laughs) That's really bad theology. (laughs) He always laughed when he said it. I wonder if I was kind of picking up. Anyway, I felt bad that I wanted to be be happy, and I didn't know how to put the two together. And and the um, Jonathan Edwards, who I'll quote tomorrow afternoon, um, together with Dan Fuller at the seminary, just pointed me to the fact that um, my being happy in God brought the two together because God is most glorified in you when you're most satisfied in Him. So that the higher your satisfaction goes in him, the more glory he gets, which just seemed like the best of all possible worlds to me. And so that, that's the nub of it. It, it started with a, the ache of my heart to be happy, a, a, a theological consciousness from the Bible and my parents that God does everything for his glory. And how in the world, how in the world can experientially I bring those together? And that's just what I've been trying to think about and work out ever since. Playing off that just for a moment, Dr. Sproul, um, I'm wondering if you remember perhaps the first time that you heard of the phrase Christian hedonism. Do you remember when that broke in on your radar? What did you think about it? And uh, how did the book Desiring God perhaps uh, help you? Uh, Did you like it at first? What are your thoughts on that? Yes, I did. did, But... I can't tell you where I was or what I was doing the first time I heard that that phrase, Christian hedonism, but uh, when I heard it, it, it jolted me. I wasn't sure what it referred to because in the history of philosophy, hedonism is a pretty bad thing. Uh, there's the crass hedonism of the Cyrenaics in antiquity followed by the Epicurean attempt to refine it into more of a virtuous pursuit, but the basic principle was that the good or the true is found in uh, maximum pleasure. And so uh, when, I, when I thought of, uh, when I heard Christian hedonism, it sounded to me as, a, 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 as an oxymoron. Uh, but then when I heard it being unpacked and listened to John and read, you know, then I understood what he was getting at, and I, uh, I see it's a, it's a marvelous uh, way to, to state the thing. You know, uh, you talk about that tension, John, between the glory of God and your personal happiness. You know, in our Westminster Confession, the very first question of the Catechism is, what is man's chief end? We answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And when I first learned that, I thought that was a contradiction in terms, because everything I thought that would be pleasurable to me would be antithetical to the pursuit of the glory of God, like eating the ice cream with the chocolate syrup all over it. And I had a hard time putting that together until my conversion and and until the things I talked about yesterday uh, on on the character of God. And what 
What I have found over the years is that I don't think the Christian life is really enjoyable until we love God not so much for what He does for us, which is a, a lot, and it's a wonderful thing to receive the benefits from Him and from His glory, but to love Him for who He is. I mean, He is altogether lovely. This is the message that Jonathan Edwards redounds with. That, uh, and, and so that when we love Him for who He is, and the more we get to know Him, the more that love intensifies, the more satisfying and fulfilling it is at the depths of our soul. You know, one of the books that I wrote that uh, probably had not the shortest shelf life of anything, that, that one would have been the one on abortion, but the one that, uh, that I had that, that just didn't go anywhere was uh, The Pursuit of God, or what was the name of it? I'm the, the glory of Christ. No, not The Glory of Christ. The, love by God. No, not Love by God. It was so short, nobody, nobody remembers, remembers it the at title. all. I don't even remember the title. <laughs> pleasing God. Wasn't it pleasing God? It wasn't desiring God. That's yours. <laughs> but, you know, if, if, ever, if there ever was a book that I wrote where I really poured out my soul about this sort of thing and the way Edwards impacted me and religious affections and his sermons and everything else, it was in that book that uh, uh, the soul's quest for God is what it was, the soul's quest for God, yeah. And because really the Christian experience for me is, is a soul kind of a thing. You know, we get to sometimes get thought of and interpreted as being purely intellectual and conceptual in our approach to the things of God. That's the t- that's the price of being a theologian. But it's, it's, it's more about the heart. But again, I think there's a direct connection between the head and the heart. We see in our day an attempt to have a disjunction between the head and the heart, which is a very bad thing. But uh, that the reason for our t- attempt to know God is not simply to puff up our intellectual curiosity, but that through the mind, the heart can be inflamed the more we understand who He is, because He is glorious, glorious, and, uh, and that's a joyful thing. So I don't know if that's answered your question, Scott, but… Can I just have you say some more? Here's, when you say that we should love Him because He's altogether lovely, knowing what you believe about Him and I believe about Him in His majesty and His sovereignty and the world that we live in, um, something really radical has to happen inside of you to say that. Um, that He's sovereign over Japan yes. and 15,000 people being swept away. He's sovereign over Libya right now, sovereign over the cancer of the people that you love, absolutely, totally in control of the universe. Uh, does not dispense with the devil yet, though he could, and any number of big, horrific, horrendous things that God ordains to happen. Talk for a minute just about what happened in you along the way that enabled you not only to concede, like begrudgingly admit that he's big, but to actually find him beautiful in all that he does. 
Well, that's a heavy question, John. I, you know, you mentioned earlier, Scott, about the, the, the uh, conference that we had in 2000, which we held in the summer, June. And my recollection was that it wasn't after Jim died, but that Jim died during the conference on the 15th of June. And, uh, and I remember, you know, between the, uh, the, the diagnosis and his death was six weeks. And what Jim's testimony was, was the testimony of his whole life. God does all things well. Even in that, he, he was comfortable and, and he was uh, satisfied. But, you know, it was Edwards, really, who drove me to uh, submit to the doctrines of grace. I fought the Reformed faith for five years in spite of great mentors who were trying to persuade me of the articles of, of uh, Reformed theology. But as Roger Nicole used to say, that we were, by nature, <clears throat> Pelagians. And so it's hard to... Uh, to bend the mind to the sovereignty of God in the way that the Scriptures teach it. But I had a little card on my, on my desk in seminary that said, you're required to believe and to teach what the Bible teaches, not what you want it to teach. <laughs> and it wasn't until I took an in-depth course uh, of Edwards where the whole course was basically on freedom of the will. Gerstner? Yeah. And, uh, and I said, Gerstner, was that Gerstner? Yeah. Sorry. Gerstner used to say, you know, about Edwards that he didn't just defeat his opponent, but when he was finished, he dusted off the spot where he stood, you know. <laughs> he, he dusted me off pretty well, and uh, Edward's treatment of Romans 9 persuaded me of the truth of the sovereignty of God in, in election. But my basic response, John, was, okay, that's true. I have to believe it. I have to teach it, but I don't have to like it. <laughs> I was really wrong about that. And it's, you know, like you learn a new word and you hear it every time you, you walk down the street. Well, once my eyes opened to the sovereignty of God's grace, I found it on every page of the Bible. And I began to see it in its sweetness, not just in its truth, but I began to see the sweetness of divine grace. And I thought, where have I been all my life that I was fighting, kicking, and screaming against the supremacy of His grace? I mean, that's just nuts. That's where I was. I was nuts until I began to see it. I can't point to a moment, an hour, and a day where it suddenly dawned on me that this was a wonderful, wonderful, beautiful thing that the Lord had done. But I can tell you an experience I had much later that confirmed it. And it was uh, in the 1993 train wreck that Bess and I were involved with in Mobile, Alabama, that train wreck that killed more people on Amtrak than, any, than all the rest of their accidents combined. And we were survivors of that particular uh, accident there in the bayou. And, and I can remember coming home and uh, kind of being in shock and not really realizing the gravity of what had taken place. And in fact, after the immediate accident, like at 3 o'clock in the morning, we sat on the train tracks for three hours until the rescue train came. And we were brought into Mobile. It took an hour ride. The train was going backwards to get back into Mobile. And there they had assembled over 100 ambulances for triage. And they divided the 
survivors into three groups and took, taken to different hospitals, and we were bused to a hospital called Providence <laughs> in, in Mobile. And, um, and we were still numb. And our friends came from uh, my son and one of my uh, co-workers at Ligonier came. They flew from Orlando uh, to Mobile, and we were taken from the hospital by hospital staff to the airport to meet them. And now it was daylight, and we walked into the airport, and we saw all these people huddled around a, uh, a television monitor. And the whole scene was this train wreck. And we're watching that, and we're thinking, we were just in that. <laughs> and you didn't realize, you didn't have the realization of the gravity of all of that. Well, then we drove home, and we got home, and the, the news media was parked at our front door on the front porch wanting to interview us and asking us silly questions. Why do you think God let you survive this? You know, and I said, I'm not sure that the people that went didn't get a better deal than the ones that survived. <laughs> but, uh, but, but what I remember, and I, this is a long way to say this, but I was reading the Psalms the next day. And David was talking about the tender mercy of God. And I said, that, that's it. I mean, God's grace and His mercy is tender. You know, and as men, we're taught to be tough, not tender. But when there are crisis moments like that in your life, it's a wonderful thing to be treated with tenderness. And to be treated with tenderness by the Lord God omnipotent, it just doesn't get any better than that. That's pure hedonism, John. Don't you think? <laughs> Dr. Piper, in that Westminster Shorter Catechism first question, you augment the word and with suggesting the word by. Tell us, link those two together, glorifying God by enjoying Him forever. If, if uh, a woman spreads a beautiful table before you and spends hours cooking it and making it beautiful, um, you might say, you know, she should be glorified for it and you should enjoy it. But everybody knows that your enjoyment of it, followed by effusive expressions of enjoyment, in some cultures it might be a burp, here it would just be, that was awesome. That was awesome. It satisfied my hunger. She would feel honored. Or the favorite story that I have, the Rose story, I've told it 500 times. Yeah. <laughs> you know, your wife comes home, Noel comes, I, I come home on my anniversary, and I knock on the door, and I've got roses behind my back, and, I, and she opens it. I don't ever knock on my own door, so she's puzzled, and, and I say, happy anniversary, Noel. And she says, oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? And I say, it's my duty. <laughs> That answer, why did you do it, is a bad answer. 
And the reason it's a bad answer is because it dishonors her. So rerun it, get the retake that you don't get to do in life. You knock on the door. Johnny, beautiful, why did you? I couldn't help myself. Nothing makes me happier than to buy roses for you and get yourself dressed. We've got a babysitter. We're going out tonight because there's nothing I'd rather do than to spend the night with you. Now, that's the right answer. <laughs> and, and never in a million years would Noel respond to that. You are so selfish. All you ever think about is yourself. Nothing would make me happier than to spend the night with you. All you ever think about is yourself. Me, 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 me. Ne Never in a thousand years would she respond like that. And the reason is because we glorify our wives by enjoying them. If you say to your wife, nothing would make me happier than to spend the evening with you, you just can't say anything better about her. So that's the idea. When God reveals himself to us, if we say, well, here are the roses of my worship because I'm supposed to, it says so in the Bible, he's not honored. <laughs> but if, if, we, if, we, if we bring our roses to him and say on Sunday morning or during the week, Romans 12:1, nothing makes me happier than to see you for who you are, be satisfied in you, and reflect that to the world. So we do glorify God. We glorify the things we value by enjoying them. John, what does it mean then for the believer to delight, find their joy in, to treasure the holiness of God? What would that look like for any of us here? Well, I really would love to hear uh, R.C. talk some more about holiness. I mean, let me give you my simple, I think, I heard, I think I've think i been listening to your book uh, on tape. Well, what do we call them now? Like on, my, on, my, on my telephone. I've been listening to it on, on my phone. Um, <laughs> so, and I, and I just about finished with it, about 15 minutes to go, and... Uh, and I, I'm reminded again, uh, what I want is the relationship between the holiness of God and glory of God. Because I talk about glory all the time. And don't talk about holiness nearly as often as I do the glory of God. The Bible talks about glory way more often than it talks about holiness. But I think R.C. is right, totally right, and, and provocatively right to make the proclamation of God's holiness the, the uh, mission of Ligonier Ministries because... Holiness is more ultimate. My take on holiness, which R.C. defines as uh, the transcendent purity of God. It, it connotes transcendence. He is other. He's different. He's in a class by himself. He's unique. And therefore, he's infinitely valuable, like one-of-a-kind diamond that has to be put behind big glass, you know, protective walls to be displayed. And it connotes purity. And just not mere purity, not mere transcendence, but transcendent purity and glory, tell me if you agree with this, is when that goes public. When, when that, the, the radiance, the radiance of this otherness, the radiance of this complete self-sufficient transcendent purity, when that goes public, we, we talk about its glory. In fact, the text, the key text goes like this, doesn't it? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Why? 
Why not the whole earth is full of his holiness? What, what do you think the reason is? Well, I think that, the, that the, there's a corollary between holiness and glory and that the glory is the consequent, it is the manifestation of his holiness. It is his weightiness, it is his heaviness, it is his significance, it is his greatness being displayed. And, and nowhere is it more obviously manifested than the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory, which is the outward, visible manifestation of who he is eternally and transcendentally. Right. So you, you come in that holiness is not one of his attributes. No. Glory is also not one of his attributes, right. Right? right? All of his attributes are glorious, and together they compose the glory. Exactly. And, and behind that is the essential reality, which is holy, yeah. something like that. So your, your question, how do you delight in the holiness of God? Surely the first answer would be you must know some things about it. <laughs> you must listen to renewing your mind type radio <laughs> programs instead of right-wing talk show programs um, <laughs> that, that just help you become cynical um, we must know I must I must know something I mean t the word G-O-D can't produce delight in anyone G-O-D it's like Gazornenplatt. Remember that old Bob Newhart? <laughs> Got monkeys together and said, if I type enough, have enough monkeys on enough typewriters, I'll get a famous line from Shakespeare. Yeah. yeah. And he, he stopped over one and he said, oh, look, 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 to be or not to be, that is the Gazornenplatt. <laughs> I love Bob Newark. But anyway, <laughs> Gazornenplatt produces nothing, G-O-D. So you got to know, you got to know, which is why we have a very thick book and, and the revelation of God in history. So my answer is you, you go deeper and deeper by watching this God in history, and then you let your mind run up all these events, run up all these words. And if you run far enough up the up the beams of glory that are coming down in all the biblical events and all the biblical words. Where you arrive is an absolute God of absolute holiness. And, and your, your affections rise along those beams and they terminate on Him. But that, that's a mature response. Baby Christians just see the beams. They, and sometimes they see the beams very uh, uh, obscurely. And so we want to grow by letting all the biblical actions of God and all the biblical statements of God carry our minds and our hearts up until they repose where R.C. Where started. They repose not in any of his gifts, which are glorious, but in, in himself. You know, Edwards uh, used to say that the chief business of the Christian is the seeking of the kingdom of God. And what he meant by that is the chief business of the Christian is the seeking after God. We have such a superficial understanding of seeking that we attribute it to non-believers. When the non-believer is not seeking God, he's running from God. He's seeking the benefits that only God can give them, but he wants the benefits of God without God. 
The seeking after God starts at conversion. It doesn't end there. And to get beyond infantile Christianity really involves being on a mission, on a quest uh, to know God. I mean, it's got to be a passion. It can't be something that we just do in, in, in our spare time. And where that desire to know Him takes us every single time is to the Word. I mean, when I want you know, as a philosophy major in college, John, uh, one of the things that would beat into our heads in every class was the acquisition of critical skills of reading, that you don't just swallow anything that anybody says, but that you have to read everything with a comb, carefully parsing and criticizing the assumptions that are made in, in, in the philosophical arguments. And, and that, was, that was a worthy enterprise and so on. But that doesn't happen when I'm reading the Scripture. I mean, the, the, the critical analysis is there to read carefully and that sort of thing. But when I read the Bible, I mean, it's criticizing me all over the place. And I know it. <laughs> and I, I can't argue against it. It's so clear. It's so manifest. It's so wonderful because it's redeeming. It's not... It's not destroying me like Satan would, but it's, it's saving me and putting salve on my, my wounds. And, and I'm meeting God. I mean, this God is not silent. This God speaks, and He's revealing His mind. He's revealing His heart to me in His Word. And so how in the world can you ever get beyond an infant's perspective of the Christian faith unless you immerse yourself in the Word? I celebrate. Um, I, I've been thinking a lot about R.C. Sproul and, and uh, Ligonier Ministries in the last days leading up to this, knowing that we're going to do this. I just celebrate, R.C., your philosophical mind to say just what you just said. Because I was going to draw attention to the fact that one of the unique things about Ligonier, there's nothing like it, it's certainly not desiring God, nothing like it, is that you have a, a philosopher who is manifestly devoted to, in love with, and immersed in, and saturated by Bible. When he talks, there's a, there's a, a philosophical rigor and awareness, and yet that comes in the service of exegesis so that you get a series on John, Romans, First and Second Peter, Acts. I mean, what, what philosophical Free University of Amsterdam trained theologian writes commentaries on the Bible? Well, C.H. Hodge. That, Hodge did that sort of thing. So I just want to take this moment just to celebrate the, the allegiance of Ligonier and the allegiance of R.C. Sproul with that kind of philosophical orientation to the Bible, which is really what has given him, I think, the kind of edge that he's had these, these 40 years. At least for me it has. Dr. Piper, I'm not going to let you off uh, with that easily, for you yourself have a love for the academy. And even in your early ministry, thought that was the trajectory um, in serving there at Bethel. Um, 
maybe the two of you could walk us through the phrase, right thinking leads to right living. R.C. has popularized this. Uh, others have, have, have said it in different ways, but the life of the mind interacting with the life of the heart, so theology lived out. Why is, is one more important than the other? Is the mind more important than the heart? And some people put those in tension. And since you both have lived in the academic world, but also in the pastoral world, serving lay people, help us understand that tension between mind and heart. You know, Chris, uh, I once wrote a, a statement that sounded neo-orthodox. Because I said, I believe in the primacy of the mind, the primacy of the intellect. And I believe in the primacy of the heart. Now, you can't have two primacies at the same time in the same relationship unless you are neo-orthodox. And, and even then, uh, you can't escape the uh, dialectic. But what I meant was that is that, that there's a primacy in the intellect in one sense, primacy of the heart in the other. I see the primacy of the intellect in terms of the order of knowing. It has to be in the mind before it can be in the heart. Because a heartfelt religion that is mindless is not genuine faith. It has no real content. It has no real understanding. There is no wisdom in it. Uh, we're called to get knowledge, but even more to get wisdom can have knowledge without wisdom, but you can't have wisdom without knowledge. So you can't really have a right heart without a right mind. So I think there's a primacy of the intellect in terms of order. But I think at the same time, when I talk about the primacy of the heart, it's the prime that in terms of importance. It's more important, I think, that my heart is on fire for God than that my mind has all the right answers for the theological examinations. So if I'm going to make mistakes, I'd rather make them with my head than, than with my heart because, you know, the Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. Now, the biblical writer that said that knew very well that the heart is not the organ that we usually associate with thinking. Even the ancients understood there was some connection between the brain and thought. That heart was more understood as the seat of the affections. So what does it mean that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he? What it means by that is not just what you contemplate casually and without any depth connected to it, but what really penetrates from your mind to your heart, the deepest chambers of your heart, what you really believe in the deepest chamber of your heart dictates and determines who you are. That's why, you know, I chose the words uh, renewing your mind for our radio broadcast, going back to Romans, because after Paul unpacks all of the glories of the gospel, he says, therefore, my beloved brother, you know, he tells us to present our bodies as living sacrifice, which is our reasonable service before God, and to have, be, not trans, be not conformed to this world, but to be transformed. How? How do you get transformed? How do you get changed? by the renewing of your mind. You've got to get the mind of Christ and have the heart follow that, and it can change your life. It turns your life upside down. What else? What else? You know, people, it's really hard for people to change. It really is. The Ethiopian really struggles to change the color of his skin and the leopard of spots. 
The only really transforming power I know of is God the Holy Spirit, and He works through the Word to do that. I'm preaching now. Preach on. Preach on. <laughs> um, just push, pushing the same thing a little further. I totally agree that the, the primacy of the affections is in terms of the mind serving the affections so that they're not emotionalism, but real fruit of knowing. God is not honored by emotions based on falsehood. He's only honored by emotions that are rooted in, in truth. Now, here, here's the practical issue. Lots of people know things and don't get changed. Some of you are just discovering the doctrines of grace, and you're just as crabby this year as you were last year. Um, so what, what's wrong? How, how can you know, you know, right knowing leads to right affections and doing, but not quickly for everybody or not immediately or sometimes not at all? The devil knows quite a bit of theology and hates all of it. Um, and he's maybe more orthodox than most of us, but he can't abide it. And, and the reason is because he doesn't know it as glorious. He doesn't know it as beautiful. So I'm just going to add, to know something aright is not just to get the theological pieces in order and have the right quotes in the Bible, but to, to go to 2 Corinthians 3.18, um, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being changed from one degree of glory to the next. Now, I would say... The implication is that the veil is lifted by the Holy Spirit. This is, this is reformed sovereign grace, lifting the blinding veil so that now we don't just see five points. We see five stunningly glorious, beautiful things about God. And it's, it's the beauty of them that changes. Beholding the glory, we are being changed. And... and they asked me the other day in our little round table at uh, Bethlehem College and Seminary, they, they said, so what, what can you, we're students here and we're faculty here, what can we do so that we don't just become academically big-headed and get it all right and not be changed or help anybody? And I said, most practical thing I can say is, as you study from morning till night, pray at least every 10 minutes that God would not let that happen and would reveal the part of Scripture that you're working on or the theological issue you're working on, reveal himself to you as beautiful. Ask him over and over again. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes. I'm staring at it right now. Nothing's happening. Ask him. Open my eyes. Because I need to see not just truth. I need to see beautiful truth, glorious truth. And that's what changes. So prayer, I think, would be the key. You look like you're ready to say something. No, I'm just sitting here and eating that up, John. I, uh, you know, I, I actually, uh, one place where I have felt uh, so much alone in the ministry that I am involved with is uh, I find so few people who have a passion for beauty. And I see that, you know, th that God is the foundation for the good, the true, and the beautiful. And you can distinguish among those three things, but you better never separate them. And I love it when you sit here and talk about it because you're articulating what I've been trying to articulate for years. That it, it's, it's not, I've usually said I don't just 
it's not just enough to understand the truth. You've got to see the loveliness of it. You've got to see the sweetness of it. You talk about the glory of it, but you've added to it the beauty of it. And, and that's it. I mean, our worship is supposed to be for beauty and for holiness. And God went to such extremes in the Old Testament to communicate that principle of beauty in the heart of worship. And that's one of the great weaknesses of, the, of our tradition is that we seem to think that the only thing that's virtuous is ugliness. And, <laughs> and we have to get away from beauty. But, uh, but everything that's beautiful, even paintings painted by pagans, uh, travesties, sometimes in spite of themselves, they call attention to the character of God because everything beautiful bears witness to Him because He is the source of beauty. And, uh, and that beauty is not just in the eye of the beholder. It's, it's there, essentially, in the character and the being of God Himself. And when, when you're talking about here, it just thrills my heart because that's what we have to see, how beautiful, how beautiful the truth is and that the God of the truth is. It's, it's amazing. We're on Keep, the same page there. Keeping with that theme a little bit, let's talk about these aspects as it relates to sin and temptation. How does the beauty of holiness help us in our fight against sin, not seeing sin as merely wrong, but as ugly? Well, you know, I think that the enticement to sin is that sin promises pleasure. That's the bad kind of hedonism. But it never, deli it never delivers. It's a lie. And that's where our great deception is. We think that we can't be happy unless we're sinning. And, that, and, and, and sin can be pleasurable for a season from, from one perspective. But it can never be joyful, ever. It can't possibly bring joy because it's not beautiful. It's ugly. And we have that attraction to ugliness. Our basic makeup is to prefer the darkness rather than the light. You know, that we're, we, we live in a world that has been marred, seriously marred. It's been vandalized. The beauty of that creation where the glory of God is everywhere, the whole world is full of His glory. But we have vandalized that, that glory. And that's what sin does. It, it makes the beautiful ugly. And we have to be able to see that. We've really got to be able to see that. You know, I'm doing a little short series on Joseph right now in the evening at St. Andrews. It's much shorter than I expected because I, after the first week I was in the hospital. <laughs> I didn't, didn't get to continue. And my next sermon, God willing, if I ever get back to do it, is going to be on the incident of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, who was the Elizabeth Taylor of the ancient world of Egypt. She was... Cleopatra in her seductive power, and she makes a, a, an advance against this Hebrew slave in her own house. What could be more ego-gratifying than to have the captain of the guard's beautiful wife put a move on you? And Joseph saw right through it. How can I do this thing? Sin against God. It wasn't just a matter of duty. He was just, this is, not, this is not a pretty thing. This is, you may think you're pretty, Mrs. Potiphar, but you're really ugly. And what you're suggesting here is, uh, 
It's just an abomination to the most beautiful thing in my life, which is my God. So I don't, I don't think that he was tied to the mast like Ulysses to, to avoid that temptation. I think he saw through it. That's the kind of character he was. We should have that kind of character. It seems to me that the way Jesus argues is that the kingdom of God is like a man who found a treasure hidden in a field and in his joy, apa karas, from his joy, he went and sold everything he had and bought that field. That's the paradigm for how you get freed from the bondage to the world and sin and, and the devil. If you see the kingdom and the king as a treasure more valuable than your grandfather's clock, your car, your computer, your books, your, your fame and whatever, then it all becomes rubbish and you're freed. Before then, it had tremendous power. It just, it held you. So sin has the power of pleasure. And, and the Bible breaks that power with the power of a superior pleasure. It, it severs the root of it. Um, so I had one of the texts in my mind. Oh, Second Peter 1. All, all things that pertain to life and godliness are yours through the knowledge of him who called you to his own glory and excellence in order that by these you might have these precious and very great promises and escape from the corruption that is in the world. So how do you escape from the corruptions in the world? Precious and very great promises of the glory and excellence of God. The, the sequence of thought in, in 2 Peter uh, 1, 2, and 3 is... Escape from corruption comes through a, a superior promise. So I think the beauty of holiness, when the, the more it goes deep and satisfies, really, really satisfies, the freer you become from pornography and from the pleasures of resentment and bitterness that you want to hold on to and from fear of man, these sins that have their talons in us, those talons are dislodged, not so much by duty yanking them out like this, but by pushing, pushing them out. You know, who, who asked what's the easiest way to get the sin of air out of a glass? Like put a vacuum on it? Go, no, just pour water in the glass. That's, it's real simple. Just want to get the air out of the glass, just fill it with water. That that would be the, the way I want to build holiness into my people's life. Earlier today, you were talking about uh, after your time at Wheaton and Fuller, all those big pieces fell into place for you. And then later you mentioned moving to a more explicit uh, Christocentric focus in terms of your ministry, even adding through Jesus Christ to uh, the mission statement. Tell us more about the person and work of Jesus Christ in recent years in your ministry. And let's also connect it back to any discussion of the holiness of God moving quickly to the person and work of Christ. Yeah, I said, I don't know if you're watching on the video, but I said one of the things we might talk about tonight is both of us have theocentric mission statements as opposed to Christocentric mission statements. And sometimes I worry about that, and it would be good to have you 
talk about that. For, my mission statement is we exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. And we did add the through Jesus Christ later. It wasn't there at the beginning. And yours is what? Proclaiming the holiness of God or something like that? Yes. So, well, that's a good point. I, uh, because, you know, uh, we've never seen a more full revelation of the holiness of God than in the Incarnation. And the first people to recognize the identity of Jesus were the demons. What do you have to do with us, Holy One of Israel? And as Jesus was the express image of His person and the brightness of His glory, what an image that is. Talk about glory. And where does the brightness come from? That refulgence, that blinding radiance that you mentioned earlier in the glory of the Father, it's from the second person of the Trinity. He's the brightness of the glory. So, you know, we, we have a Trinitarian understanding. And when we talk about the holiness of God, I don't mean just God the Father. It's, it's, it's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting that we call the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit, but it's the Holy Father, it's the Holy Son, and it's the Holy Spirit uh, because it's the Holy God that we're talking about. And, and again, uh, the, the question that was asked Jesus uh, you know, we've seen these fantastic miracles. You change water into wine. You raise people from the dead. You heal the blind and the deaf. But uh, let us have the big one. Show us the Father, and it suffices us. If you ever find Jesus disdainful and frustrated, it's, how long have I been with you? And you don't know. Don't you know that if you see me, you see the Father? And so there you have uh, holiness uh, all over. A couple of factors have have pushed me toward a more explicit uh, Christ-centered verbalization of my mission. Um, one of the sequence of texts I shared in the message this morning, Ephesians 1, 6, 2 Timothy 1, 9, Revelation 13, 8, showing that from before creation, the climax of the revelation of glory would be the revelation of grace, and the climax of the revelation of grace would be Christ, and the climax of Christ's life is his death, so that the whole universe exists for Calvary. That's, that's one. Another one is the rise of Islam. I, I get into these discussions. I, I was on a panel with a couple of imams. I have one message. If you don't love me and know me as I am, you don't know God. There are five or six texts in the Gospel of John that are explicit. If you receive me, you receive the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. If you reject me, you reject the Father. The litmus test of all religions claim to know God is do they know Christ. Judaism doesn't know Christ. Islam doesn't know Christ, Buddhism doesn't know Christ, and Hinduism doesn't know Christ, and New Ageism doesn't know Christ. They all reject essential core issues about Jesus, which means none of them know God, which will get you killed all over the world today. So this is really big, that, that we, we cannot today in this religious milieu just talk about God. Every, every Muslim will nod, and Jews will nod, and Buddhists will nod, but as you say, you must know Christ and Him crucified and risen from the dead for the sake of sinners, and that's the only way you can know God, then your head comes off. And so I think it's absolutely crucial that we become increasingly 
uh, Christ talkers in this way. You know what, Chris, I think... I think we need to change our mission statement <laughs> to, to make that absolutely clear because you're so right. You know, John wrote that book, Contending for the Faith, and, and the, uh, the thing that I came away from is this, the simple message is that it's not enough to believe the truth of the gospel, but we're called to defend and proclaim it and defend the truth of the gospel. But even that's not enough. We have to be prepared to contend for it. And as Luther said, if you're not contending for it at the critical point of the moment, you're not contending for it at all. And right now, the point of contention is with the darkness of Islam in this world. So I'm, I salute you for taking that stand because it's so true. The, what, what none of the religion have, they don't have a savior. They don't have an atonement. They don't have a resurrected Lord because they don't have Jesus. And without Jesus, you don't have anything. Yeah, and it, it, I just got a book from the publisher. I think it's Oxford uh, called Allah and something like Christian Response to Islam. And, uh, and it, it will argue that we are worshiping the same God or something, some version of it. And I've... I've got a big quote from me in there, and that John is the one we want to answer. Can I, that sort of that sort of thing, and uh, it's it's just an unbelievably challenging issue. And how many evangelicals are going squishy on whether or not other religions, in their earnest pursuit uh, yeah, of right. God, are not in fact uh, Allah. Acts 17 will be where they go. I see that you're very religious, and him whom you worship without knowing it, I now present to you that we all do worship the same God. So I think you're right. This, this is the front burner challenge, not just of a vague pluralism, which is there, but of a concrete challenge of the, of the second biggest religion in the world. I wonder if we could stay on this topic for just a moment. Both of you men are known in your pastoral ministries, in your writing, in your teaching ministries to be contenders for the faith. And whether it's going way back to the battle of the Bible days or if it's more recently things like open theism or justification, talk a little bit more about some of maybe the current or emerging theological battles that this younger generation of young, restless, reformed pastor types need to be aware of. Are we going to be revisiting perhaps some older battles or are there new things that are emerging on the horizon? Well, you know, when I was in seminary, I was at a liberal seminary, and uh, Boltmon was the big deal of the day. And it was beyond BART at that time. <clears throat> and uh, I found refuge in this movement called evangelicalism. And I wasn't sure what it really was, but I knew that it was disparate, that involved advocates from all different kinds of denominations but there was a common thread running through all evangelicalism, two chief doctrines that cemented the unity of evangelicals. One was the doctrine of Scripture, and the other was the doctrine of justification by faith alone. When I graduated from seminary, I never in my wildest imagination ever thought 
that the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture would be a, a divisive issue among professing evangelicals. Although that was a little bit more understanding to me because of the relentless assault by higher criticism against the Scriptures. And so, even though I didn't anticipate it, I was surprised by it, I wasn't utterly shocked by the battle for the Bible. But what really turned me upside down was the issue of justification. I never thought I would live to see today that leading professing evangelicals would negotiate the article upon which the church stands or falls. And, and I saw it, and I saw it with a vengeance, and I was caught completely off guard in that. But <clears throat> having said that, and having lived through those uh, critical issues, uh, and people ask me, what do I see as the greatest danger on the horizon for the years ahead? Let me say what I always say. It's the doctrine of Christ, person and work of Christ. Uh, in, in all of church history, there have been four centuries where the church's understanding of, of Jesus uh, rose to critical proportions. In the fourth century, that culminated in the Council of Nicaea. In the fifth century, it culminated in uh, uh, Chalcedon in 451. And then the 19th century with the advent of uh, liberal theology and modernism. And the 20th century where the person and work of Christ was slammed in the mainline churches. But we have not passed beyond that. I still think the church's understanding of Jesus is the single most critical issue facing us in the 21st century, and I think it's going to get worse before it gets better, particularly when I, I mentioned this afternoon, John, about how much I appreciated your, your book on imputation, because I never thought that even in the Reformed community anybody would ever raise questions about the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. How can you be a Christian and raise issues like that? And yet, that's, it's, there's open season on the, uh, on the act of obedience of Jesus over the imputation of his righteousness. For me, without the imputation of Jesus' righteousness, I have nothing, absolutely nothing. There is no gospel without it. And yet, that's, that's in the middle of the, uh, of, of the battle right now as we're sitting here tonight. In, in and among evangelicals, professing evangelicals, and professing reformed people ready to negotiate imputation. It's unthinkable to me. And so I think we're going to have our hands full in the days to come, and it's going to be focus always again. The world, the flesh, and the devil can't stand the biblical Christ. And they're going to try to do away with him one way or another. So we have to be prepared to fight the battle at that level. Yeah, just, just to put a point on it, the place where Christ's work person is attacked is at the cross, justification, and penal substitution. And that relates directly to the wrath of God and your view of God. Yeah. So they go hand in hand. Uh, if, if, if your view of God is that he just can't hate sin so much as to send people to hell. So you got wrath, hell, and cross all standing and falling together and underneath the authority of Scripture and, and a certain kind of approach towards life that is submissive instead of standing over and saying, I don't like that kind of God, standing under and letting Scripture dictate. So Christ at the center here, his penal substitution and justification circling there, that 
coming from a God that we don't want to have wrath from and that cannot have hell underneath. All those things right now with the big Rob Bell fracas uh, are, are, are seen to be so closely connected that the very people that call the atonement divine child abuse are the people who can't have wrath, are the people who can't have hell. And so what you wind up with, and you know, you said, will we see new things coming? There isn't anything new, I don't think. This is, numerous commentators recently have so well said, this is so old. We have seen this so many times before, and it, it cycles through. This is old liberalism from the early 20th century. And all this excitement about Bell's universalism and all that stuff. I mean, there are tens of thousands of pastors in mainline churches that believe exactly the same thing. The only thing that gives him some, uh, some print is that he's a professing evangelical who's denying Orthodox uh, Christology and Christianity. Just one last comment on, on us as contenders. I don't know how R.C. feels about this, but I didn't write any article in response to Bell. Um, Twenty years ago, I most certainly would have. And the reason I didn't is because I looked at the quality of what younger guys were doing, and I was so happy. <laughs> I mean, I just read DeYoung yeah. and, and the others, and I thought, what's left for me to say? <laughs> right. I mean, I could just die and go to heaven. I'm really... And my wife, she, she just said to me, Johnny, I'm so proud of you. <laughs> you didn't write a response because they're good. So I feel encouraged at that level that uh, guys 20, 30 years younger than we are are producing responses to new things coming along that do not require us older contenders to jump into every every fight. Maybe in a minute or two we could circle back to this aspect of the things that you're encouraged by that are happening out there. But uh, to probe here a little bit more, both of you men at times have uh, uh, spoken at places and participated with others who do not share your theological emphasis or philosophy of ministry. Why have you both chosen to do that through the years? Um. When I first started out with Ligonier Ministries, I was determined that though my passion was for the unique tenets of the Reformed faith, I understand that Reformed theology, before it's Reformed, is first of all Catholic, second of all Evangelical, and then third, Reformed. But you can't be Reformed without embracing what we call the Catholic doctrines of Christianity, the Trinity the person and work of Christ, the atonement, things that we share with uh, uh, other Christians. And, and as I said earlier, the authority of the Bible and justification by faith with evangelicals, uh, we share that. That's all part of the fiber of Calvinism and of Reformed theology. And so I, I saw when I came out of seminary and out of graduate school that the real crisis in our day was, as I mentioned a moment ago, the Catholic issues, the person of Christ, the character of God, the very existence of God. These are things that are not just uh, unique to people in the Reformed faith. And so I determined that I would cooperate with anybody who was uh, uh, even broadly evangelical. Now, 
and we did that in our conferences, that we were trying to reach out to brothers and sisters outside the pale and the scope of, of the Reformed faith. And, uh, and so we would have speakers come who didn't share our distinctives at all, but they did share a commitment to evangelical truth and to the Catholic doctrines of the faith. And uh, frankly, along the lines, we got burned a few times because I had some speakers that uh, took positions that I never expected them to take that I thought really denied evangelical Christianity. And I said, hey, we've got to be a little bit more careful here. We haven't changed the strategy. We still don't insist that people are, are altogether reformed before they can appear on the platform of a Ligonier conference or anything like that or that we'll... We'll, we'll be willing to, con to uh, work with them. We work with people from all different denominations and together for the gospel and all that. But, um, but this, this ecumenism and relativism is making it harder and harder and harder to be cooperative because you just don't know what these, where these people are going to go. Before you know it, they're out there telling the world that you can be a Muslim and go to heaven, like you said a minute ago, and you think, what? And I'm giving that guy my microphone. I got It just becomes a sticky wicket. <laughs> if you know what I mean, I'm sure you know what I mean. It is sticky, and I don't. I don't claim to have it figured out. Um, I don't. I don't presume to claim to say I've got three criteria or a sieve with this size hole that everybody goes through as to whether they'll come to a desiring conference or whether they'll uh, let me come to their conference or church. Um, I, I, a, a couple of principles would be I don't want to give credence to any doctrine that is um, outside the evangelical orthodox sphere. So if a person believes you can be saved without trusting Christ consciously. I don't want to hang out with them in any way that would give the impression I believe that. Methodologically, I'm really broad. That is, I can tolerate a lot of stuff that I wouldn't do. I don't do it that way. I don't do it your way. You don't do it my way. And I don't do it other people's way. But, but So on methodology, I'm willing to cross more lines. And, and another principle is... I want to influence people. I want to make everybody a Calvinist. Absolutely do. Because it's true. And I think we should want people to believe what's true. And so whenever I go anywhere that doesn't have that flavor about it, I'm hoping that I can talk in such a way as to win lots of people over. Over to the website or over to the books or over to another sermon. And suddenly they'll start to taste like, whoa, that's biblical which, of course, is all that matters, right? The only reason we use the words like Calvinism because we think it's a good summary of biblical truth. So I just want to be biblical. So a principle is I'd like to go places where there are not many like me so that I might win some. So coming back then to what encourages you today? Uh, obviously, R.C., you've described yourself in the past as battlefield theologian um, and uh, have fought many struggles. But what encourages you when you look at the landscape in the church today? I, we, we can always find things to be discouraged by. But uh, 
What would you say to this generation well, to encourage them? Together for the gospel, John and I have done that several times, and, and we see you know, 5,000 pastors there, and 3,000 or 4,000 of them are in their 20s or 30s. That's very encouraging to see this younger generation on fire for the gospel. We see the resurgence of interest in Puritan literature in Edwards and the things that we hold precious. Uh, there is a, an awareness of the Reformed faith in our churches today that certainly wasn't there 40 years ago. I mean, I, I've seen that development, and, and that's very encouraging. At the same time, evangelicalism broadly is sinking. I see the Reformed faith rising. And so I'm encouraged by that, though I'm discouraged by the former. Um, yeah. I, I'm so cautious because history is fickle and movements rise quickly and fall quickly. If somebody says, what do you think the next century will be? I say, I, I don't know. Right. I just don't know. But um, the fact that there are Let's just start from the big and move to the small. Globally, the last 50 years have been stunning. I'm going to talk about this tomorrow a little bit. The rise of the global south, the books by Philip Jenkins, the new book by Mark Knoll about the growth of Christianity in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. Christianity in the big, broad Christendom terms means that the possibility for the spread of deeper truth and greater understanding has tracks on which to run now in places that it didn't 50 years ago. So if you move outside the departures of Europe, which is just dead, to the more vital places around the world, there is much to be encouraged by that God the Holy Spirit is, is magnifying the sun all over the, over the world. We should be praying and not complaining. Oh, it's a thousand miles broad and an inch deep. Well, stop complaining and get on your knees. You know, this is, this is worth praying about because the Bible says, uh, grow in the knowledge and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of Second Peter. Don't, not complain that nobody's there, but grow, grow. So that, that's big. And then you, you narrow it down. And there are evidences of renewal and awakening in Europe and in um, America. And it, it is largely reformed. And it's amazing that it is. And, and reformed in no denominational sense. Right. This is, you can't draw the, the categories. They, they defy categorization where God is cropping up with his sovereignty. You got, you know, C.J. Mahaney types right. over there and Mark Driscoll types and yeah. Matt Chandler types and Mark Dever types and R.C. Sproul types and Sinclair Ferguson types. And those are really different types of people <laughs> and, and types of music and types of ministry and clothing. And I mean, it's, it is just, it defies categorization. And it's got this common denominator of Bible people remarkable orientation on complementarity between men and women, a remarkable love for the sovereignty of God in the face of suffering, and a deep confidence that God saves sinners sovereignly. That's just kind of cutting across lots of denominations. And in and, and a conference like this, it's interesting because the generations here are so diverse. You, 
you, you pull older people and younger people together. I don't get any older people come to my, my conferences. I don't know what you do to get older people to come, but maybe have it in Orlando instead. <laughs> it's cold. You're going to slip on the ice and break your hip in, in Minneapolis. When I was last time I spoke up in Minneapolis for you, it was 13 below zero, and I was never so happy for global we warming. We figure if you make it... If you make it hard, they, the real people will come. <laughs> what you're talking about there, John, is the end of the Elijah syndrome, that I, I alone am left, that the Lord has, has 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And as I said last night, the cemeteries of this world are filled with people that were supposed to be inexpendable. <laughs> but the, the Lord God doesn't need me, and He doesn't use you, and He, he, he brings His Word to power in every generation, every part of the world. And, it's, and I think we have this parochial thing about America, like the kingdom of God stands or falls with what happens with American Christianity. Boy, is that silly. I mean, like you said, it's all happening outside the United States, the third world in Africa, South America, even in Eastern Europe, what's going on over there right now. And in China, holy mackerel, what's happening there. Because, you know, this is the Lord... The, this is our father's world. I can't world. believe you said holy mackerel. <laughs> mackerel are not holy. That's left over from the old RC. That is. You got me there. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Unholy mackerel. <laughs> Actually, it's not unholy either. It's just mackerel. Mackerel. You know, uh, I, I, this friend of mine, this lady, that uh, she was trying very hard to have children. Uh, she couldn't. She was an immigrant from the old country and had trouble speaking the king's English. And she went and had a physical examination from the doctor and uh, trying to find out why she couldn't get pregnant. And the doctor said to her after the examination, he said, Madam, you have a tissue in your passage, and if you have a baby, it'll be a miracle. She came home, and her husband said, what did the doctor said?" He said, I don't know. It's sounded funny. He said, I had a fish in my passage. If I have a baby, it'll be a mackerel. <laughs> this thing's starting to go south here, I think. <laughs> Please edit that from the tape. <laughs> I, I think it's amazing to be 72 and remember that. I'm just even par. <laughs> 72. Same as Scott. <laughs> well, as we take a turn toward home now and uh, begin to bring this time to a close over the next few moments, we do need to, we need to talk a little bit about, uh, I think, John, you just commented on all of these personalities and such. And in our day, we've, blessed, we've been blessed with uh, all of these conferences and such, and we've been blessed with all of these ministries. But I want to ask both of you men about your heart at this point in your ministry now for redirecting people to the local church. I've heard one person say that disciples can be born at conferences, but they are not made at conferences. Disciples are made in the day in, day out, week in, week out, life on life, preaching of the word and sacraments that takes place in the local church. So we're a part of something in our day that is special and wonderful, remarkable, and we praise God for it. 
we come to events like this and we drink deeply and we profit much. Exhort us, both of you if you would, exhort us now, um, redirect us as it were to the local church and the primacy of it in the working out of all of these things that we talk about here at, at conferences like this. Scott, when I was ordained a hundred years ago, I, I was ordained to the teaching ministry, and my first call was to be a college professor, and then from there to be a seminary professor, and then from there a life uh, devoted to adult Christian education. And my education was in, that, in those paths, and it never occurred to me to be a pastor. I had concerns for pastoral life. I didn't think I had what it took to be a pastor. And I still don't. I'm really not a pastor. I'm a preacher, pretty much, at St. Andrews. And, and yet, my, my, my ministry and my career, if you want to call it that, has been widely diverse and done lots of things with writing and radio and conferencing and teaching and so on. But the greatest joy of my life in ministry is being able to be the teaching and preaching pastor at St. Andrew's Church, where I can be in the same pulpit every Sunday, not running all over the place here, there, and everywhere, but to be able to have a flock of people, the same people, and to be involved in expository preaching week in and week out to those people. Because I really believe that the, the most important, uh, the most corrupt institution in the world is the church. And I think the reason for that is it's the most important institution in the world, and all of the uh, arrows of Satan are directed against it. But what has to happen in this country, in every country, is for the church to be the church and for the church to be focused on godly worship and the exposition of the Word of God so that the people in the church are being nurtured and fed and become disciples. The Great Commission is not to go to all the ends of the earth to make converts but we are to make disciples, teaching them. And that is through preaching the expo exposition of the content of God's Word. And the chief vehicle that God Himself has ordained for that purpose is the church. And to um, underline it, the New Testament, I think, is crystal clear in saying that Christ died in order to become the head of a universal body to buy a bride, and that this bride, this church, is to be manifest in the world in local congregations. And the evidence for that is, number one, the language of 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 of members in the local church where head in 1 Corinthians doesn't refer to Christ. It's like head, foot, hand, leg. And so he's talking about a local body. And then officers in 1 Timothy, officers of local church are specified for us, elders and deacons. So clearly the Bible isn't loosey-goosey that everybody should have some kind of uh, connectedness with another human. But rather there should be local churches with elders and deacons 
and those are gifted to teach, and they're charged to feed my sheep. To me, to me personally as a pastor, that word to, from Jesus to Peter of, uh, do you love me? Yes, Lord, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, feed my lambs. I, I hear that as the main work of the eldership in the church is feed the sheep. God has ordained it for whatever reason that there be these kinds of structures. We might like to think because we believe in the priesthood of believers that everybody can do everything and we're all on the same par. But in fact, he's ordained there be people with the gift of teaching and that others with the responsibility to learn. And that happens in the local church. And it's remarkable to me, just historically in these ministries, that your ministry begat a church and my church begat a ministry. They're both overflows, you might say. They're, they're, they're attached. I don't know how structurally yours is attached, but, but Desiring God is owned by Bethlehem Baptist Church. And the elders of Bethlehem Baptist Church could destroy it tomorrow. They could put it out of existence tomorrow. And so it, it, it's structurally attached, and it's considered as just putting a, a, a megaphone to the life of the, of the local church. Let's talk about your journey with your helpmates over the years. R.C., you celebrated 50 years with, with Vesta. And John and you and Noel have been 42 years. Um, tell us about, uh, John, just tell us about what that's been like to have your wife with you by your side over the course of ministry. I like texting, especially if she's across the room. But I texted her at, at lunch today, said, I love you. Um, yeah, there she is. That's an old picture. <laughs> I've got more hair. <laughs> but there she is. Um, life as I've lived it would have been impossible without Noel. Um, nobody knows what it costs, I think, a wife of a, of a pastor and the, and the wife of a, of a public figure and the wife of an embattled public figure. Um, and nobody knows what it's like to be the mother of five children and to have your heart delighted and broken uh, more than once. Um, and so to, to link arms and walk along the way through the pain and the happiness of having children and having a ministry is, is something that you, you can't quite quantify in terms of, of the depth and wonder of it. I um, imagine, I've said this often to her and, and to others, uh, we're, we're 65 and 63, and um, we've been through a lot, and there have been really hard times. And I say, it will be, and now it's hardly future tense anymore, I used to say it in my 40s, it will be glorious to one day go to a little restaurant on Lake Superior with little birds flitting around outside in the bushes looking through the glass over this massive lake when we're really old and I'm almost bald and our skin is not taut anymore, it's just hanging on our knuckles and there are 
big brown splotches all over our legs and all over our arms and and uh, and look at each other in the eye and say with tears, we made it. We made it. And, and have the, the, the depth just of covenant-keeping strength. And romance goes like this. You get angry as all get out at your spouse, and then you feel rotten. And, and, and sometimes there are heights of ecstasy, and sometimes you just feel like there's no future. And, and, and to make it to the end with covenant-keeping love, which is what marriage is intended to portray to the world, Christ keeps covenant with his bride and that my my bride has been so faithful to me through all of this is beyond estimation it is it is more valuable than you can begin to put dollars on so sweet and deep and unshakable i used to just one last thing i, I used to use the the phrase velvet steel. In fact, I named a book of poetry for Noel, Velvet Steel. And after about 35 years of writing poems about my wife's velvet steel, by which I meant she is soft and warm and embraceable with, with mo a backbone of steel. She just well, finally said, you know, I'm tired of that. <laughs> I don't want I don't want people to think of me as steel anymore. Oh, wow. Uh, because I think she began to hear in it hardness. And so even even your favorite images can go south. <laughs> she's she's soft inside too. <laughs> yes you are, Noel, if you're watching. Well, you, Chris, you know, just a few days ago, uh, 4 o'clock in the morning, I wasn't able to breathe. And, uh, and so, uh, kind of a frightening experience. And it's like when you're choking in a restaurant or something and you're desperately trying to get a, just a breath. And uh, that's all I could do to wake Vest up. And I said, uh, you've got to call 911. I've got to get to the hospital right away. So she jumped up and called, and five minutes later, the ambulance was there, and uh, they, they told, the paramedics told Vesta where they were taking me, and so she left in the car ahead of the ambulance, and we went to the hospital, and uh, we were marvelously treated and cared for at the hospital by the paramedics before we got there, and the emergency room physicians and so on. But they finally rolled me upstairs into a, the room, and they had the nice bed and all these wonderful nurses have been very kind. There was this awfully hard leather chair off to the side. And Vesta parked herself in that chair. And she said, I'm going to stay here. You know. And I said, oh, honey, you don't need to stay here. You know, I'm getting good care. And I said, you better stay here because I want you to stay. And uh, the next morning, she just had to go back to the house for this or that and the other thing. And I said... Honey, you go home and take your time, do what you have to do. You know, I'm going to be fine. And she left, and she walked out of the room. And when she walked out of the room, I looked at the clock. And I thought, now, how many minutes is it going to take her to get from here 
to our house to get the things done that she needs to get done and be back here. <laughs> and I watched the clock the whole time. And when she walked back in that door, it was glory. And she stayed there the whole time I was in the hospital. I mean, I, I was a sissy. She was, uh, she was the rock. And I, I just mentioned that because it's anecdotal and it's episodic because that's our life together. She has been the quintessential helpmate for me for my whole life in everything that I do and care about. And uh, this is an unspeakable gift from God. You know, Luther said of Katie von Boren that if God wanted me to have a humble woman, he'd have to hew one out of stone. Well, he hewed one out of stone for me, and what a blessing.